Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a man which by going into him can defile him, but the things which come out of a man are what defile him. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Michael's is a liturgical church. We worship according to many of the very ancient customs of the church. And if a person is not familiar with this particular style of worship, it can seem strange or even a bit intimidating. Growing up in the Episcopal Church, I used to watch as a young boy other people around me in the pews, and I wondered what would happen if I did the wrong thing at the wrong time. Like as a, as a kid, I, I wondered, like, what if there was a buzzer that went off every time you did something wrong? Like what if everyone goes from standing to kneeling, but you accidentally sit? <laughs> Or what if you make the sign of the cross when no one else does? Well, you'll be relieved to know that the buzzer at St. Michael's has been broken for some time. But you'll know when it gets fixed because Father Kraft will just walk out into the sanctuary. Seminary was when I really learned how detailed and particular the ancient Christian liturgy is. The server holds the wine in the right hand and the water in the left. You always light the gospel candle second, but you put it out first. When I was just a young pup, I remember telling the priest that I had accidentally set the altar with the purificator instead of the corporal. But I mean, you've all done that, right? Who hasn't set it with the purificator instead of a corporal? But I was horrified. What had I done? And he confirmed my fears, telling me, well, the whole mass is invalid. And you just delayed the second coming of our Lord by an entire millennium. Don't do it again. I mean, I knew the stakes were high, but I didn't know how that they were that high. The truth is, is that while there is an incredible amount of detail involved in ancient Christian liturgy and worship, it all points, all of it, to a deeper purpose. It is filled with rich symbolism and meaning. There is a booklet some of you may be familiar with because we distribute it here at St. Michael's. It's on our website, written by the bishop who ordained me, Bishop Keith Ackerman. It's about all of the symbolism and the meaning of the Christian liturgy. It's called Why We Do What We Do. In the introduction, Bishop Ackerman speaks to the true purpose of Christian worship. I'm going to read an excerpt from the introduction. He writes, Ultimately, God is most concerned with our hearts. Our faith is more important than whether or not we make the sign of the cross at the right time. Therefore, we must not approach ritual and ceremony from the perspective of uniformity, but rather from a position of why we do it. This is universal and what its significance is for us, the personal. For example, a person may very well know exactly what to do ceremonially, ceremonially, but if there is no faith or belief behind the action, then it is merely an external expression. Conversely, he says, one may not have a clue as to what to do in terms of ceremony, 
but may have a heart which is bursting with love for Christ. The Pharisees knew what to do, he says, but Christ's concern with them was that they did not live it. They wore the right ritual clothes, but their lives did not reflect the faith. Therefore, before we can approach the issue of why we do what we do, we need to have an examination of our heart. The real why we do what we do is to be a true reflection of our relationship with Jesus Christ, to which I think we could all say amen. In today's gospel, our Lord confronts the Pharisees on this very point. The Pharisees are aghast to find that Jesus' disciples are eating food with defiled hands, defiled meaning unwashed. And this is against, they say, the tradition of the elders. But our Lord is even more aghast at the hypocrisy of these Pharisees. So he fires back at them. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast the traditions of men. It is not that there is anything wrong with the traditions of the elders per se. It is that these traditions have actually taken the place of God's own commandments. Liturgical customs and rituals and spiritual practices and traditions that point to and embody and bear witness to the word of God, these are all well and good. If they are emptied of their true purpose and meaning, well, then they become a hollow shell, just a shadow of what is true and good. But the ultimate danger, and the one that our Lord is pointing out to the Pharisees, is if the doctrines and traditions and precepts of men actually replace the truth of God's word. It's not that the Pharisees have ignored God's commandments, or even that they have disobeyed them. It's that they have replaced God's commandments with their own. You leave the commandment of God, Jesus says, and hold fast the tradition of men. In the next verse, which was cut out of our lectionary text, he repeats the, the saying, you reject the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. St. Paul, in one of his epistles, has a similar word of caution to the church when he writes, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. One of the early church fathers, St. Irenaeus, writes that these Pharisees enjoined an adulterated law at cross purposes with the divine law. In this, their rabbis suppress some of God's commandments, add new ones, and ultimately they give their own interpretations, ultimately making God's law serve their own purposes. This is such an important word for the church today. There is nothing wrong with the traditions of the church in and of themselves. 
And this teaching is not about old traditions or even about empty traditions. It is about leaving the commandments of God altogether and in their stead replacing them with doctrines and traditions and precepts of men. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. May our liturgical worship and preaching and teaching at St. Michael's and indeed throughout Christendom never be a replacement for God's word, but always find its source and power and be rooted in the truth and power of that word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that sounded like the end of the sermon. I'm sorry to say it's not. We're only at halftime. Sorry. Still going. It is tempting for us to read this gospel and to find ourselves standing next to Jesus in condemnation of the Pharisees. By the way, it's an interesting exercise when you read the scriptures and meditate on them to ask yourself, who is it that I identify with in the passage? It would be easy for us to identify with Jesus and and point at the Pharisees and say, yeah, 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 you guys, you totally are missing the point. But in truth, we have far more in common with the Pharisees than perhaps we even realize or are comfortable admitting. Jesus goes on to point out to them and to us, really the heart of this teaching, saying, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a man which by going into him can defile him. There's that word defile again, meaning unwashed, unclean, unholy, profane. There's nothing outside a man which by going into him can defile him, but the things which come out of a man are what defile him. And the list our Lord gives is not short. He says, from within, out of the heart of us humans, Come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I don't think our Lord has left anything out in this list. All these evil things, he says, come from within. These are what defile a man. At the heart of Jesus' teaching is this profound truth. That which is external to us does not cause us to sin. Our sin comes only from within us. In truth, how quickly are we to blame extenuating circumstance, external situation, and especially other people on our own bad behavior. Well, if they weren't such a jerk, I wouldn't have lost my temper. Or if they hadn't fill in the blank, I wouldn't have fill in the blank. Yet our Lord says plainly, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a man which by going into him can defile him. The things which come out of a man, these are what defile him. Commenting on this passage, the seventh century English monk, the Venerable Bede, writes, this is an answer to those who consider that evil thoughts are simply injected by the devil and that they do not spring from our own will. He says that the devil can add strength 
to our bad thoughts and inflame them, fan the flame, but he cannot originate them. And St. John Chrysostom, this whole teaching and passage reminds me of one of his sermons, a sermon that is entitled, No One Can Harm the Man Who Does Not Harm Himself. The title says it all, and I would love to read the entire thing to you. I will spare you that. However, I am going to quote at length from St. John Chrysostom's sermon. He begins by defining the way it is that we are called to live as Christians. He defines what virtue means, and he says this, what then is the virtue of humanity? Not riches, that we should fear poverty, nor health of body, that we should dread sickness, nor the opinion of the public, that we should view an evil reputation with harm, nor life, simply for its own sake, that death should be terrible to us, nor liberty, that we should avoid servitude. This is the virtue of humanity, he says, carefulness in holding, true doctrine, and rectitude in life. In other words, believing that which is right and doing that which is right. Of these two things, not even the devil himself, he says, will be able to rob a man if he who possesses them guards them with needful carefulness. Thus, in no case will anyone be able to injure a man who does not choose to injure himself, even if all the world were to kindle a fierce war against him. And he goes on naming this litany of external circumstances which tempt us to sin. He says, it is not stress of circumstances, nor variation of seasons, nor insults of those in power, nor intrigues besetting us like snowstorms, nor a crowd of calamities, nor, this one's fabulous, a promiscuous collection of all the ills to which mankind is subject, which can disturb even slightly the man who is brave and temperate and watchful. Just as, on the contrary, the indolent and supine man, I had to look up those two words, I'll tell you what they mean, indolent, wanting to avoid activity or exertion, i.e. lazy, and supine, lying face upward. <laughs> okay, uh, where I lost track. Just as, on the contrary, the indolent and supine man, who is his own betrayer, cannot be made better, even with the aid of innumerable ministrations. And finally, he goes on to speak to this principle that we see in our Lord's parable of the two men, the one who builds his house on the rock, the other on the sand. This parable, he says, is about virtue and vice and teaches us that no one, again, injures a man who does not injure himself. He says, neither the rain although driven furiously along, nor the streams dashing against it with much vehemence, nor the wild winds beating against it with a mighty rush, shook the one house in any degree, but it remained undisturbed, unmoved. That we might understand that no trial can agitate the man who does not betray himself. But the house of the other man was easily swept away, not on account of the external circumstance, 
not on account of the force of the trials, because if it was, then the other house also would have experienced the same fate. But it is on account of his own folly. For it did not fall because the wind blew upon it, but because it was built upon the sand, that is to say, upon indolence and iniquity. For before that tempest beat upon it, already it was weak and ready to fall. For buildings of that kind, even if no one puts any pressure on them, they fall to pieces of themselves, the foundation sinking and giving way in every direction. Just as cobwebs part asunder, although no strain is put upon them, but bedrock remains unshaken even when it is struck, so also those who do not injure themselves become stronger, even if they receive innumerable blows. But those who betray themselves, even if there is no one to harass them, fall of themselves and collapse and perish. That which is external to, not, to us does not cause us to sin. Our sin only comes from within. We are responsible always for our bad choices. They are no one else's fault but ours alone. This is the heart of our Lord's teaching, and it comes from the one whose heart was never defiled. It comes from the one who, while he was cursed, he blessed. While he was being betrayed, he remained steadfast and faithful. While he was fiercely hated, he loved without condition. While he was assaulted by death, he overcame it with everlasting life. This is the one who is all holy in all things, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can purify our hearts so that we too might live holy lives. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.